Welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. It's not just for contracting officers. If you work anywhere in the government acquisition world, this podcast is for you. Today, Kevin welcomes special guest and Skyway team member Wendy Freeman to talk about proposal automation tools. This episode is brought to you by BidProtestInsurance.com. Bid Protest Insurance is exactly what it sounds like. Insurance to protect your award from bid protests. Bid protests are nearly impossible to predict. Since bid protests typically cost the apparent winner up to 15% of the contract value, they can be a nearly catastrophic financial event, especially for small businesses. Having insurance against this mitigates that risk. Here's how bid protest insurance works. Go to bidprotestinsurance.com to apply for a free, no-obligation quote. To secure that quote, you simply pay a small fee. If and only if you receive the award, you'll be charged for the agreed-upon premium. There's no cost if you don't win the award. Now, if someone protests your award, you're covered for many of the costs that are created by protest delays. To cover yourself in the event that someone protests your next win, go to bidprotestinsurance.com to get started. Okay, let's talk proposal automation with Kevin and Wendy Freeman. We're talking about automating the proposal process. And for some context on this, we're talking about how do you make the proposal process more efficient with things like automation? Because large proposals involve lots of moving parts. Some have multiple volumes. Some have potential, potentially hundreds or, or thousands. <laughs> Crazy, the first time I heard about a thousand-page proposal. Like the physical, what that's like... 10 inches of paper. It's crazy, but they get really big. The schedules for these kind of proposals, you're talking about a mix of simultaneous and, and subsequent tasks. Some things are linear, some things are nonlinear. It sometimes involves you know, 50 or hundred people. I mean, they can be huge. Or if they're small proposals, a lot of those same things are there. They're just being done by fewer people. And then you could have subcontractors. So it gets really complicated fast. Kevin, it does. And because of that, it's very natural for people to look for tools to automate the process as much as possible. And because, especially because you know, given the complexity of the proposal process, there's this belief that uh, there's a magic bullet, right? I mean, there's a, there's a plug and play. There's a perfect template I can just grab. They'll make this process just run itself. You know, it's like the, the, you can cook yourself breakfast and it'll pay your taxes for you. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a process out there, you know, right, Wendy? I, I am so sorry to be a killjoy. Um, <laughs> that's like asking me, what is the perfect way to raise your children? There must be some perfect way. No, there is no silver bullet. At least in the proposal world, there is technology. Because then now comes the question of, how do we know what tools to invest in? Which technology is the right fit for my size organization, for the kind of contracts you go after, for how often we use them, for what we're doing with them, et cetera. It, it can be a serious financial drain and an opportunity cost. And, and it times suck, <laughs> for lack of a better term, if you don't pick carefully. Because if there's one that has more than you could ever need, and there's one that has not even close to what you need, you end up not picking carefully and then you're allocating resources in the wrong places, which means now your proposals can be even more difficult to do. And before we get into all that, the shout out this week goes to Jason Stein from Performance Systems because he took the time to give me his feedback, his detailed feedback on the podcast. In addition, Jason gave me great feedback on how he likes that we use FAR time. He said he likes the fact that he actually knows where in the FAR these things are coming from. And the critical value of that is huge because it gives them context. 
So thanks, Jason, for explaining that and helping us to get better with every episode. Okay, back to proposal automation. So we can classify what's available in the proposal automation world into two basic categories. There's the general tools that can be customized for proposals, uh, like SharePoint is, is an example of you can customize SharePoint to make it do what you need to for a lot of proposal tasks. We also use box.com for us. That's how we use a lot of the, the, the resource management of, of documents and spreadsheets and attachments and version control, all that kind of stuff. SharePoint's a great example of that. And then there are tools that have been built by people with a proposal background specifically for use on proposals. Cubidian's one example of that. And typically they're available as a web client for the enterprise or an individual with seat or subscription-based pricing. I, I think the days of getting a, a DVD or a CD and loading it, I think those days are over. They should be. <laughs> it's funny to think about actually loading the software manually on your computer. Within each of these two categories, you can classify these tools into different functions based on what they do, the function they perform. And we have episodes talking about each one of those individual functions. Give me some examples of how you see them breaking out into sections or chunks of the tasks that are done on proposals. I wouldn't tie it so much necessarily to the proposal phase, but more to some cross-cutting activities. For example, some of them deal with document control and management. Some of them enable real-time collaboration. Some of them help you build graphics more quickly. Um, some of them help you analyze what's in the RFP. Some of them help you um, decompose or strip the RFP. And some of them are about content and template management. And that's only a few examples, believe it or not. There's a lot of other functions that, that can get automated. And, and as I'm, I'm listening to this, I'm realizing we could do a podcast episode on each one of those. The, the, the one that caught my ear was the RFP decomposition. What does that mean to you? That's a, a phrase that I'm expecting most government folks especially haven't heard of. Well, it's interesting. Um, I have heard that the government actually, in certain acquisition shops, the government actually does do this decomposition. It's when you take an RFP and each sentence in the RFP becomes a cell in a table. And then you can add columns so you can correlate different pieces of the RFP with each other. And it becomes like a mini relational database is really what it becomes. It makes compliance checking much easier. And I had someone tell me that as soon as the proposals come in, in a particular acquisition shop, the first thing they do is decompose the RFP so they can do a compliance check. And, and that struck me as very funny because if the government is decomposing the RFP and we're decomposing the RFP, why does anybody compose it in the first place? <laughs> but anyway, that's what RFP decomposition is. And it's funny. I, I called that the compliance table. The phrase RFP decomposition is not how I phrased it, but you're right. It's the same thing. Is we're, we're creating a table that we can say, did they meet each one of the things that we put in the RFP? And that's an interesting point that makes you a fun compare, fun, and that's not the right word. An interesting comparison might be what does the, the decomposition look like from industry on one particular RFP versus how the government team, when they're doing the evaluation, because if those two don't match, 
that's where the problems start. <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great example of how the, the things that we don't know that we don't know is that that concept of making a table, a compliance table, is the same thing that industry is doing with the RFP when we send it out in the first place. Let's stay focused here on the automation process. Let's skip over to FAR time. The, the FAR already talks about automating steps that they're already envisioned in the FAR. There's contract writing software like the Procurement Desktop Defense, the ConWrite, and there's now a, a new Con IT system. They all are or, or attempting to be the tool that can automate much of the RFP and contract creation process. Because a lot of these things, they are templates. There's a section to each one of these. There are 13 sections to almost every government RFP. So a lot of the stuff is repeatable. And the FAR contemplates the use of a lot of automation. For example, comes up in FAR Part 13 where it talks about electronic signature and purchase orders by automated methods, specifically says that. Let me ask, where do you start automating, Wendy? If, if you've got this proposal and, and you've, you've, got, you've built this proposal team, you're going to start responding to RFPs, where do you start? I think the, the best place to start, Kevin, is by recognizing that we've all already automated to some extent right? Otherwise, we'd all still be typing on IBM executive typewriters. You're way too young to know what those are, but, but I am not. Um, an IBM executive typewriter, this preceded the Selectric, and each character was actually a different width. So if you had to, God forbid, backspace and use whiteout and retype, you had to know exactly how many backspaces to do for an M versus an L. Okay, we're done with that. <laughs> I hope so. So now um, almost everybody uses some version of Microsoft Word, if not an Adobe product to create text. So we've all already automated to some degree, but within that framework, there's still debates about which features inside those applications we should use. And there was at a proposal management conference back in a approximately 2004, a heated debate of over an hour long about whether or not one should use automatic numbering of paragraphs in Microsoft Word. And people went at it hammer and tong. Um, and it was particularly heated because there was a woman from Microsoft there. It, at the end of the day, it, the most interesting thing is at the end of the day, there was no consensus neither side won the argument. So, um, so everybody's doing it to some extent. That, that's the first point. Um, the second point really is that competition is gonna make some level of automation inevitable because if your competitor is automating and getting stuff done faster and better, you're gonna have to do it. Back in the IBM executive typewriter day, I will tell you how we did proofreading. Two people had the document, and one person read it out loud to the other, paragraph by paragraph, and you would alternate back and forth. And it, it was to say it was time-consuming is, is an understatement. It also caught all the mistakes in a way that spell check does not, because when you read something out loud, you get the spelling mistakes. And when your eye looks at it, you don't. And we all know the mistakes that are made by spell check. However, that is not competitive today and nobody can afford to do that. So you're already doing some automation and, and you have to do a certain amount just to stay competitive. 
So the best thing is really to recognize what your baseline is. What do you already have? And to understand that if you try to take on too many tools, you're going to run into problems at the other end of the spectrum. So some of the questions that you might ask, how long does it take to learn to use it effectively? How many people really need to use it? Where in the proposal cycle is it best used? Are the same people performing the same proposal functions each time? When are you going to do the training? Are you going to try to do it just in time? What are the recurring proposal pain points? Are those likely candidates for automation? And, and sort of what's your communications plan? And let me just say why I have that question on there. Because there are people who have very set ideas on a proposal about how much different people on the proposal are going to know. There are people who try to control the information very tightly, both for proprietary reasons, for security reasons, and to avoid distraction. And there are other people who say, once you're in the proposal door, everybody should have access to all the information, because that's actually the most efficient way to do things. I can, I can teach it round, as they say, and I can teach it flat. I, I don't take sides on it. But what you think about that really affects your tool set and how you roll that tool set out and how you configure it. So what you're saying is that the style with which you expect the team to communicate is going to affect the type of tool that you use. Absolutely. It's interesting that, that from, from the government side, when I'm putting the RFP together, most of the time you're given the tool, right? And people tend to not look any further than what's in their stovepipe. If, you know, if, I'm, if I'm the engineer, I'm looking in this, that part of the statement of work. I'm not looking elsewhere. They're, they're not really, for the most part, they're not necessarily incentivized to communicate across to the other teams until you get the final version. And, and, and as I review the whole thing as a, as a contracting officer getting ready to post it, I may find some things that don't, that don't correlate, whatever. But in the context of the proposal piece, when you're talking about teaching it round, teaching it, teaching it flat, I, I like that analogy. What's the downside of people all having access to all the information and being able to see all the different pieces at the same time? Why is that such a risk? Well, for one thing, the people involved in the costing and the pricing, they don't want anybody to see anything. Well, that makes sense. Right, just by definition. It's they, they, they won't put their stuff on SharePoint or Privia or anything. So right away, you've got one you know, reason for stovepiping. Um, another one is that it, it, I can see how it could be distracting. If you have a bunch of people who are supposed to be writing text and they can spend their time going through 15 previous proposals or reading about all the subcontractor qualifications or people just, it's very, very easy for people to get distracted. Whereas if they just work in a particular SharePoint room or a particular room on some tool, they stay much more focused. As I said, I, I can, I, I understand both sides of it and I, I can, I can see different approaches working on different proposals. It's a great example of the value of, of a proposal manager is that you, you need to know what's the overall mission of the organization. How, how much communication do they want to understand which sides of that argument make the most sense and then lead people accordingly? <laughs> because you're right. It's very easy to, to spend all your time looking at stuff that's not relevant just because it's in front of you. Well, also, Kevin, 
the issue comes up a lot with subcontractors. Should the subcontractor have access to the red team draft? And how do you give them access to it without them actually having access to it? And people try to lock it down so that they can't copy it. And that, of course, makes it almost impossible for them to comment on it in a meaningful way because they're basically doing their comments offline. And, and I always want to ask, if you don't trust the subcontractor enough to adhere to the NDA that you presumably signed with them, the non-disclosure agreement, why are they on the team in the first place? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's why it's called a teaming agreement is that you're supposed to be on the same team. It- one of the other things to think about is is consider you know what happens when the clock starts to tick. Like the the the, the work is now the RFP is dropped, the clock's ticking, it's due in thirty days. You know, how, how does the temperature in the room change in relation to these automation tools once you've actually got a clock ticking behind you? If if the tool is mission critical and it's basically baked into your process, you have to ask a few questions. When you say baked into the process, what do you mean by that? You can't effectively get your proposal done without using the tool because nobody knows how to do it manually. (laughs) That's a frightening scenario, but so possible. So, so in that scenario, what plans are there for support? What's your, what's your service level agreement basically with the supplier? Is there, can somebody create a manual alternative on the fly? Is the vendor stable? Are they going to go out of business? And do you have time for people to learn how to do this on the job? Or do you have to build in time for, for just-in-time training? If, if you don't do just-in-time training, you fall into a different trap, which is that someone has learned to use the application, but they haven't had to turn it on for six months because we all know proposals is a spiky business. And you can go six months without doing one. So these are just some of the things that are important to consider. And this concept of OJT, having to learn something on the job, that's one of the reasons that we use Box for our proposal management, you know, their document control and a version control and all that, because it's really intuitive. Box is an easy software. It's an easy application to use. You know, it's web-based. It's, it's really simple to drag things around. It's relatively easy to give people rights. It's easy to understand. It doesn't do everything, but if you've never used it in 10 minutes, you understand how it works. Whereas there's some tools out there that you could spend a day <laughs> navigating all the different pieces of it. It does so many things, but you need 1% of them to work today. And because the clock is ticking, you, you, now that we've created distractions. So that's a really good point of, of you know, how on top of this software do you have to, to be? How often do you have to use it? Kevin, I am a, I'm considered a super user of a proposal tool and I still have to get up to speed if I haven't turned it on for, I would say, eight weeks. Wow. Yeah. It tells you how complicated they can be. And and complicated is not always the best answer. I mean, sometimes low tech is a better solution. And Kevin, furthermore, I think people probably can think of examples in their own experience where there's been serious miscommunication using the most basic form of automation email where we write something and it's absolutely clear to us what we mean. And every single person who receives the email interprets it differently from the way we did and the way we intended and possibly different from the way someone else has interpreted it. So 
every once in a while, it's worth thinking about low tech. I actually still like the telephone. I like drawing on a whiteboard and taking a picture of it with my phone. I like post-it notes and, and the old fashioned sticky wall where you put the pages of the proposal up on the wall and you actually walk the wall so that you can see 15 pages of your proposal together in one place without having to scroll through. You experience the proposal text differently that way. Yeah, it's the zoom out factor. Being able to zoom out and look at the whole thing. I do that a lot with some of the content we create. And I'll zoom out and look at all the slides at once or look at all the words. Uh, One of the proposal phrases is, is the wall of words. So when you zoom out and look at like a 20-page section at once and, and realize there's no break in there, <laughs> there's no graphic, there's no nothing. It looks like a, like a novel. And I like your point of, yeah, pick up the phone. <laughs> the, the tone in voice is huge because as a contracting officer, the number of emails that I sent out that, that came back to haunt me. And so as a result, I was really leery of it because I, I learned over time that what you put in an email particularly the faster you write it, the less effective it can be. And we tend to do that sometimes. And so you're right, low tech, the phone and, and, or a whiteboard that you can draw out. Here's what we're talking about. It's a, it's a great way to keep proposals organized. And so don't get automation happy is the point here. You know, make sure you know where that line is. Well, let's baseline this with the acquisition time zones. We talk about the acquisition time zones in episode three. Um, and then also the execution time zones in episode 84. So talking about proposal management, we're talking about proposal automation tools. We're for firmly going to be planted in the acquisition time zones and specifically in the market research zone and the RFP zone. Those are the two areas that industry is using these tools. They're trying to collect all the information, get it organized, assess what they're going to do with it. The government is also, to some extent, using the automation tools during that market research zone because that's where I'm putting together the actual RFP. That's where I'm using the procurement desktop defense or the con IT or the con right or whatever tool you're using. That's when that's happening. Let's jump to why this is important. Why does anybody care? Time is the ultimate equalizer. We all have 24 hours. So shaving off hours or even minutes, it can be the difference, particularly on proposals because you have a finite amount of time to respond to get that proposal done. Right, Kevin, I, you know, I always say, proposals are binary. It's there or it's not there. You miss the deadline, it's not there. It's that simple. Basically, the the proposal automation tools, they can enable you to, to shave off that time and to help you get things done faster as long as you don't go overboard. And for our podcast, we could, we could post a podcast directly into Apple Podcasts and Google Play. We used to do that, actually, in the early days. Instead, we have a hosting service that does that for us, and they get it done in minutes, right? Uh, it saves us about four hours a month. Instead of us spending about an hour a week manually putting the, the content out there, they've got all the software set up. At four hours a month of savings is huge. I don't know if we'd be able to keep up with one a week for 230-some episodes if we didn't have little things like this shaving off that time. And the proposal concept's the same way. You've you got to be able to shave off time in places that it makes sense. Another thing to remember is that it's important to shave that time off and to be more efficient on on proposals of every size. So automation is not just about large proposals. It can help with accuracy. It can help with version control. It can help with things that are important regardless of size or scale. 
because that timeline still applies. It may be a shorter timeline if it's a smaller proposal, but the concepts still apply. On the government side, this automation stuff is important because it, it, the complexity of your RFP is increasing. And, and not, not necessarily because the complexity of what, you're, of what you're buying is getting more complex. It just might be that there are more clauses, there are more things, there are more rules. And the expectation from the customer may be that the contract gets done faster. So the turnaround time between me as a contracting officer saying, I need this in three weeks, whereas you know five years ago, I could have waited three months. Now that, that shorter turnaround time means that both sides, industry and government, are looking for automation tools. Kevin, that kind of goes back to where we started about everybody wanting the silver bullet. The unintended consequence of things being compressed in time means that everybody's out there chasing to find what's that answer that's going to create the right efficiencies. And, and not all tools do create those efficiencies. They can also create costs, which result in higher overhead. And ultimately, everybody pays for that. All of us taxpayers end up paying for that. And speaking of taxes, there's an entire industry built around automating the, the, the tax process. You can buy software that'll do your, mostly do your taxes for you, right? Well, the same type of industry is built around proposal tools. There are lots of proposal tools. Some of them do way too much. Some of them do just enough. Some of them don't do enough. But you need to know what you need. So why does the industry care? Why do those who are writing their proposals really need to be aware of these types of tools and when to use them? As I said before, it, if you're involved in proposals, you're already using tools and it's important to recognize that and to continue to train on them and understand what they can do for you. I, I still take training in Microsoft Word because you can never know enough about it as far as I'm concerned. Industry has to care because tools can be expensive in, in time and money. And on the other hand, they can create great efficiencies and can make the difference between getting things done and not done. And, and choosing wisely really makes a difference. And like we talked about, there's so many different areas to focus. What are some key factors to start that decision process? Well, a couple of really easy ones are just how simple and intuitive is the tool to use. If it requires a lot of special training, it might not get used at all. Another one is scalability. Um, can you make it work for both small and large projects? And then look at the, the cost benefit, the return on investment. How much is it costing you to do it the old way? Instead of emailing versions back and forth using the attachment function, using one location that everybody can work from, that's a pretty straightforward trade-off. However, there are a lot of organizations that still manage proposals using email attachments. That seems really exhausting. So what are, what's a big takeaway for you? What's, a, what's a, the one big thing you want them to remember about proposal automation? We're all already doing it. And it's important to take an inventory of what we're using, what's working, what's not working, and where the pain points are in the process that could be addressed by technology. Nice. And for me, from the government side, understand that, that, that industry is trying to use these tools as much as they can for the reasons that, that you talk through. They need to be more competitive. They need to get more stuff done. They, they literally can't do it 
the old way. So they're looking for these tools. So understand that that is happening and, and how can you in your RFPs and your communication facilitate the use of that better. On the industry side, don't be surprised if the government doesn't understand all the tools that are available. When I was a contracting officer, I knew some of the tools that were out there, but this, that whole decomposition process, I called it something different. I didn't have a tool for it. So we were doing that manually. If there's a tool for that, don't assume that I'm going to know that. Or, or likewise, don't, don't, don't assume that, I, that I'm going to know that there isn't a way to do this faster. So a lot of this communication of what, what tools are available and how they're used, that's why we did this episode, was to help both sides get some context on what are the tools that are out there, how are they used, and, and how do we make the best of them so that we can actually get work done faster? Because that's the expectation, is that every contract's getting awarded faster. And so this automation process, I think, is going to increase over time, and we'll, we'll probably revisit this topic. So thanks again, Wendy, for being on the podcast, and it's awesome to have you officially on the Skyway team now. And I look forward to having you on even more episodes. Thank you, Kevin. Okay, that's it for this episode. Thanks to our sponsor, BidProtestInsurance.com, and thanks to special guest Wendy Freeman for joining Kevin today. We'll see you next week. Bye.